This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Welcome to Hidden History, an Odyssey Through Time. I'm your host, John Rodriguez, and this is the 17th episode of the Best History Podcast North of New York City. The title of this episode is Bride of Bergen-Belsen, The True Story of Gina Turgel. Before we begin, we here at Hidden History would like to give a quick shout out to the podcast of the month of May over at the Deluxe Edition Network, our podcast family. This month we have two great podcasts to promote. First up is the Real Drunks podcast where they watch and discuss their favorite movies along with other random off-the-wall topics. You can find the Real Drunks podcast on Spotify, Good Pods, or Amazon Music. That's the R-E-E-L Drunks podcast. Second, we have Horsin' Around, a hilarious no-holds-barred podcast that covers topics from conspiracies and monsters to ghosts and surreal true life. Check them out on Spotify, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening, and now let's get to the episode. Gina Turgo, who was born Gina Goldfinger in 1923, was a Polish-born Jewish author, educator, and Holocaust survivor. When Nazi Germany invaded Poland in 1939 and rousted her family from a comfortable home in Krakow, Gina was forced to survive in the Krakow ghetto as well as several concentration camps, including Plazow, Auschwitz, and Bergen-Belsen. While most of her family members died, Gina and her mother survived to see the liberation of Bergen-Belsen in northern Germany in April 1945. One of the liberating British soldiers, Sergeant Norman Turgo, saw her and was lovestruck. So much so that soon after meeting her, he managed to arrange a dinner for her at the officer's mess at his British camp. They married six months later, with Gina wearing a wedding dress made from a British Army parachute that is now in the Imperial War Museum in London. The couple went on to eventually have two daughters and a son. Their love story became a favorite light-in-the-darkness tale for the news media. Mrs. Turgel was, quote, the bride of Belson, but she devoted her life to educating people about the atrocities she had seen and experienced during the Holocaust. While her husband Norman died in 1995, Gina would live on until June 7, 2018, when she passed away at the age of 95. Gina's story Hidden history that has remained long forgotten is the story of a young woman determined to survive in a world of hate and the painful journey she experienced to finally reach the light at the end of the tunnel. Gina Turgel was born Gina Goldfinger on February 1, 1923 in Krakow, Poland the youngest of nine children born to Samuel and Estera Goldfinger. 
Her parents operated a small textile business that was located just a few streets away from their home, which Gina later described as a comfortable, spacious ground floor flat with five rooms. The Goldfingers were a respectable middle-class family, and as such, their home was decorated with Persian carpets, chandeliers, and good furniture. In 1932, Gina's father Samuel died, and her mother was left to care for the children and run the textile business on her own, which she was successful at. According to Gina, her father had been ill for several years with lung issues, as a result from serving during World War I. She also had this to say, quote, I am sure that Adolf Hitler's growing influence in Europe also contributed to his poor health. He died not only from his wounds, but from worry and fear. The fear that Hitler would gain power in Germany and try to conquer the world. The year 1932 had unfortunately seen Hitler's rise to prominence in Germany, spurred largely by the German people's frustration with horrible economic conditions, the still festering wounds inflicted by defeat in the First World War, as well as the harsh peace terms of the Versailles Treaty. Samuel Goldfinger died the year before Hitler came to power. On January 30, 1933, German President Paul von Hindenburg appointed Adolf Hitler as Chancellor of Germany. By August 1934, Hitler's rise to power was complete when President Paul von Hindenburg died. Hitler merged the chancellorship with the presidency and became the Fuhrer of Germany. Despite losing her father at a young age, until later events, Gina enjoyed a very decent childhood. Because her mother was of Austrian descent, she was fluent in the German language. Mrs. Goldfinger encouraged Gina and the rest of her siblings to practice and speak German as well, which would prove to be a great asset for Gina later on in the concentration camps when she was forced to interact with the Nazis. While Gina grew up in a traditional Jewish home, her mother was a forward-thinking and tolerant woman, and the Goldfingers lived in a mixed community of Jews and non-Jewish individuals. At Easter, when the family celebrated Passover, Mrs. Goldfinger always invited a non-Jewish person to dinner to, quote, show them our way of life. Along with her religious values, education was very important to Gina's mother, and when each Goldfinger child reached the age of 14, they were sent to Protestant grammar schools where languages, especially French and German, were a priority. Music and mathematics were among Gina's best subjects at school, and she later claimed that she had quite a good singing voice at the time. Mrs. Goldfinger also had an English tutor for her children, who would visit them at home in the afternoons. Gina and her siblings called the man Anglic, which was basically Polish for Englishman. Gina's first encounter with her English tutor was at the age of 12, but she was already familiar with him because, she had, because he had taught some of her older sisters and brothers. Her first two sentences in English were, the sky is blue and the sun is shining. While Gina would later say she wasn't a brilliant scholar as a child, she also added that, quote, I don't remember my school days very well because later events in my life completely overshadowed all recollections of those early years. Along with her studies, Gina also enjoyed the outdoor life and she used to go on school outings, including mountain climbing expeditions. After school in the winter, she often went skating with her sister Miriam and other friends, with the frozen ponds serving as their ice rink. Because she was a beginner, Gina fell so many times while ice skating that her knees became cracked and bruised, 
but it was her favorite pastime and she enjoyed it tremendously. On September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland, bombarding the country on land and from the air. Germany claimed that they had been attacked first by Poland, but this was a lie. German soldiers dressed as Poles had staged a phony attack on the German radio station and then spread fake news of the attack, pointing the finger at the Polish nation. The real reason why Hitler invaded Poland was to regain lost territory and ultimately rule his neighbor to the east. He wanted Germans to live in Poland once it was ruled by Germany, and he considered the Polish people inferior and only fit as a workforce. England and France had promised to help Poland in the event of a German attack, and so they declared war on Nazi Germany two days after the invasion, on September 3, 1939. Only 11 years after the end of World War I, the world was now involved in a Second World War. The German army used a lot of violence, with the Air Force in particular causing a lot of damage. Heavy bombings reduced the Polish capital Warsaw to ruins, and tens of thousands of soldiers were killed throughout Poland. While Poland was defending itself against Germany in the West, on September 17, 1939, Germany's ally the Soviet Union attacked Poland from the East. This two-pronged attack was too much for Poland to handle, and on October 6, 1939, the last Polish troops surrendered to Germany. In the last three months of 1939, the Nazis murdered 65,000 Jewish and non-Jewish Poles. But what about Gina Goldfinger and her family? Well, here's what happened. Gina Goldfinger was 16 years old on September 1, 1939, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. For several months before the invasion, Gina and her family had been following the newspaper reports on German activities and they were all very scared. The city of Krakow, where Gina lived, is the second largest and one of the oldest cities in Poland and a prime target for the Nazis. The day of the invasion, Gina walked outside onto the street and she, quote, glanced up at the sky, saw several planes, all flying low, all bearing the black and white German insignia on their sides. When the bombing started, we all ran to the shelter across the street. It was absolutely terrifying and sounded as if the whole of Krakow was being flattened. Gina would later learn that the bombings had occurred on the outskirts of the city, with the city itself in relatively good shape. The bombings went on until September 3rd and then stopped. After a few hours, the German army marched into Krakow and because the windows of the Goldfinger's home faced the main street, Gina and her family could see the quote, proud, arrogant way the men were marching. At the time, there were six members of the Goldfinger family still living at home. Mrs. Goldfinger, three sisters, one younger brother, and Gina. After a few weeks, all sorts of restrictions were introduced by the Nazis in Poland. Jews were banned from trains and trams. All Jews had to wear the Star of David at all times, and Jewish people no longer had rights. Soon, all Jewish people had to register for an identity card, which had to be stamped, and each morning they had to assemble outside a building the Nazis called the Labor Exchange, where jobs were assigned. 1939 turned to, turned to 1940, and the Nazis' grip over Poland only grew stronger. 
By this point, the Goldfingers had lost their business and much of their possessions. They were also down to five members of the family at home. One of Gina's sisters, Sala, had decided to join a group of people fleeing Poland. Gina would not know of her sister's fate until after the war, but spoiler alert, she survived and ended up in Israel. The Jews of Krakow were ordered to register for another stamp on their identity cards, and Gina and her family, along with hundreds of other Jewish Poles, were, fo were forced to relocate to the village of Boric, which was about two miles outside of Krakow. From their nice, comfortable home in Krakow to a very small room in a large block of flats, life has certainly changed for the Goldfinger family. Food was very scarce in Boric, especially in the winter of 1940, but Gina and her family were able to trade bottles of vodka with local farmers for sausages, eggs, and butter. In Poland at that time, a bottle of vodka was like an ounce of gold and very strong, with about 95% alcohol content. On March 20th, 1941, the Krakow Ghetto was officially established. Beginning with the invasion of Poland during World War II, the Nazi regime set up ghettos across German-occupied Eastern Europe in order to segregate and confine Jews into small sections of towns and cities, furthering their exploitation. The Krakow Ghetto was set up in the Podgorza district of Krakow, instead of the traditional Jewish quarter, Kazamiz, because it was believed that Kazamiz was more significant to the history of Krakow. By autumn 1941, Gina and her family were forced to move to the Krakow ghetto with nothing but a sack of potatoes, some flour, and a few other belongings. Once they reached the ghetto, Gina and her family were assigned a living space, which was just a dark 10 by 8 ground floor room which included a kitchen and bathroom that they had to share with two other families. One of those families lived right next door to the Goldfingers, and the other family lived across the hallway. That winter of 1941 was not easy for any of the Jewish people living in the ghetto, with very little coal for the fireplace and no other source of heat to keep them warm. Gina and her family slept in their thickest clothes during those cold winter nights, but they knew there were others who were living in even worse conditions, so they remained thankful. They were thankful that they were still alive, although they were worried about their future. No one was allowed to leave the ghetto without a pass and a very special reason. The Nazis did a very good job keeping all of the Jewish people contained within the ghetto, and life was very tough. Food prices were high because of, the, because of the severe shortages and goods had to be illegally smuggled into the ghetto. To add to their worries, the Jewish people of the ghetto knew that death could come at any moment. Death for something as simple as being outside at the wrong time or even helping someone move furniture. This was the case with Gina's youngest brother, Vilik, who was killed during his time in the ghetto. Now here's Gina to explain what happened to her brother. So following day his wife came over to my brother and she says to him, Vila, could you please come and help me to move this wardrobe? Because it's rather very difficult for me to do so. And of course, he felt it's the wife of his best friend, he's got to go and help her. And she happened to live across the road. So he went there. And he stood on a table in order to clear the things from the table. And a shot fired at him. 
And as bad news travels very fast, they reached us. In the meantime, he's been taken to the hospital. So my mother, my two sisters and myself, we rushed to the hospital. We weren't allowed to enter. We had to wait for permission. So we waited quite a while. And all of a sudden, a body had been carried out, covered in a black cloth, and it was not large enough to cover the whole body, and placed on a trolley in front of us, like on my right side. And I saw myself, I looked at this body, and I thought, why the place in this body in front of us? And then I looked at it again, and I looked, I recognized they were the feet of my brothers. You see, we were nine children, five brothers and four sisters. He was the youngest of the brothers, and I was the youngest of the sisters. And we had so much in common, we always joked together, and he was my favorite brother. So I nudged my mother, and I said, Mom, this is Vilek, his name was. And she says, oh no, Vilek is upstairs, they're operating on him. So I said, no, he is, this is Vilek. And then my sister comes over, and my other one. And they looked at it, and they recognized it was my brother. It was quite a, took a lot of persuasion until my mother realized this is her son. And of course, a proper burying wasn't allowed, and he's been willed away. And months later, they told us just about where he was buried. So it was a loss of him. Unfortunately, this would not be the only loss that Gina and her family would have to deal with. Gina's older brother, Janik, along with his wife and young son, were also living in the ghetto at the time. When the first transport to Auschwitz left the ghetto, Janik's wife and son were selected to go, and at the time, Janik had been away from home with the Polish army and unaware of the situation. I'll let Gina take it from here. A few weeks later, the segregation of women. One of my brothers was married, and he was serving in the Polish army, and he had a child. So he's been away, and his wife lived in the same building as we were. And in alphabetical order, we had to stand up. You see, the huge place, very large hall, and in front were about 35 Nazis. And we had to stand, hundreds and hundreds of us. My sister-in-law with that little boy stood in front of us. And she's taking out some sweets, and which she saved. And she wanted to give to my nephew. And he turned around to her. Mommy, don't worry. If the Germans want to shoot me, he will lay down and he will pretend that he is dead. Now, can you imagine a child of three and a half years old to turn around to say that to his mother? As we approached this panel of Nazis, they were told to go to the right, my sister and my nephew. My mother and my two sisters to the left. And they were shouting at us, quick, we shall leave. And hundreds of women in front of us. We took quite a while to get out. 
So as we were waiting, I turned around, and I've seen on that right side so many women and children, and then being taken away. That was the very first transport to Auschwitz. And the rest, you can imagine, they were straight into the guest chambers. So the news, how to bring that to my brother, which if ever he will come back from the army. But as it happens, some weeks later, he escaped the segregated the Jewish soldiers from the Polish soldiers, Christian soldiers, and they've taken him to the wood. And my brother escaped, and he came into the ghetto. And to tell him about what happened to his wife and his child was a very difficult task for us. And of course, my mother was rather brave, and she broke into him gently. And he turned around, he says, he's not going to stay here. He's going to the French resistance, and he's going to fight the Germans. So he managed to obtain some Christian papers. He didn't look very much Jewish. He could easily escape. And a few of his friends. He went down the sewers in a ghetto in order to get out. And the Nazis were waiting outside the other side, and they shot him there and there, and so many others of his colleagues. So when we learned about it, how did we learn it? Because they found some clothes which belonged to him, a waistcoat, and we recognized that it was his. That was a loss of him. And to endure that was rather very difficult to come in terms with those losses. Gina's brother Janik had lost everything that was precious to him, his wife and son, and so he decided to escape the ghetto through the sewers and join the French resistance. He never made it out alive. In March 1943, Gina and her surviving family members were sent to the newly established Plazov concentration camp, which was located in a southern suburb of Krakow. Located on the grounds of two old Jewish cemeteries, the camp took one month to construct using slave labor. Many of the Polish Jews imprisoned at Plazov would die due to executions, forced labor, and the overall poor conditions in the camp. The Nazi commandant of this camp was a ruthless man named Eamon Goth, who told his new prisoners, quote, I am your God, in his opening speech as the commandant of the camp. Goth lived in a villa which overlooked the Plazov camp and is still standing today. In fact, if you have seen the movie Schindler's List, British actor Rafe Fiennes portrayed Eamon Goth, and there is a famous scene from the movie where Goth shoots prisoners in the Plazov camp from the balcony of his villa. Gina and thousands of other Jewish Poles were now at the mercy of this sadistic Nazi commander. Gina would later have this to say about Eamon Goth. Quote, the sight of Goth approaching always made us tremble. We could see him in the distance, accompanied by two huge, vicious-looking dogs and sometimes a third dog. 
All the time we were being watched, Goth had the habit of standing at one of the windows of his villa with his binoculars. If he noticed anyone slacking in the camp, he would come down, drive to the area, and shoot the person. Goth was the type of person who would shoot a man dead for having not shaved or for looking too stupid or looking too clever. When he was in one of those moods, Goth might shoot a hundred people just to exercise his authority. In the early months at Plazov, Gina and her mother, along with hundreds of other inmates, worked at a uniform factory in the city and were escorted back to the camp at night. During her time at Plazov, Gina experienced mental and physical abuse at the hands of the Nazis and their collaborators. She would also lose another member of her family in that camp, this time a sister named Miriam. As the months passed by, a complex of uniform factories were set up within Plazov and those who worked within those factories were not allowed to leave the camp anymore. This meant an end to bartering, the exchange of goods between people. Gone was the opportunity of trading an item for a sausage or a loaf of bread which could be smuggled back into the camp at the end of a work shift. Gina's sister Miriam was one of the lucky few who still worked outside the camp, but in September 1943, Miriam and a group of people were caught bringing food into the camp. Goth gave the order for them to be killed and they were shot with machine guns after digging their own graves in the nude. Gina and her mother discovered the news soon after and although they tried to comfort each other as best as they could, there was no comfort to be found in a Nazi death camp. Quote, Miriam used to sleep on my left side in the barrack and from that moment to this, my left arm has always felt chilly as if a part of my flesh had been cut away from me. Once a large family, the Goldfingers were down to only three, Gina, her mother, and sister, Hella. One goal Gina clung to during those dark days of the Holocaust was to keep her mother alive, and Mrs. Goldfinger was as determined as her daughter to survive. Still, the pain continued for the family. One day, Gina's sister, Hella, who worked at Schindler's factory on the night shift, disappeared on her way back to her barrack, Gina, her, Gina and her mother later found out she had been kidnapped and brought to a hospital to become a victim of the Nazis' notorious medical experiments. Hella was injected with fuel oil and had been drained of a large amount of blood, which made her very ill. With each passing day, Hella grew weaker and after regular injections of fuel oil, she was unable to move her arms or legs. Her bone marrow and kidneys were failing and she developed tuberculosis in her bones. Meanwhile, as the Soviet army approached in the summer of 1944, the Germans prepared to dismantle the Plazov camp. The SS began transferring prisoners to other concentration camps in Germany and Austria, while others were deported to the Auschwitz-Birkenau killing center and murdered there. The Germans also attempted to remove all traces of the crimes that had been committed in the camp. They ordered that mass graves at Plazov be opened and the bodies exhumed and burned. Gina heard a rumor that her sickly sister was likely to be sent to Auschwitz and she did her best, through friends in the camp, to keep Hella's name off the list. Then in December 1944, word arrived that the camp was about to be shut down and the remaining inmates would be sent to Auschwitz. The transport to Auschwitz that Gina and her family were part of was so large that there weren't enough trucks available and so the Jewish inmates had to walk from Krakow to Auschwitz a distance of almost 43 miles in below freezing temperatures. 
Along the way to Auschwitz, Gina saw the bodies of men who had been shot from the previous transports rolled down into the gutters to be forever forgotten. In January 1945, the last prisoners from Plazov were sent to Auschwitz for evacuation further west. They were shouting at us, the Nazis, quick, we have to march. And we marched again to villages, to cities, and we found ourselves in Auschwitz. In Auschwitz, we were segregated by Dr. Mengele. As you maybe read about him, he was uh, the one who tortured and experimented on people. And we were segregated to a shower. So many women, and my mother and myself. And we walked down and some steps and we got into that place stone floors, openings in the ceiling. We were shivering. We had to leave our clothes behind. And then um, no soap was given to us. And we were waiting and waiting, trembling. It was bitter cold. And all of a sudden, the doors opened on my left and walked in a woman, which I recognized she was the clerk working in a previous camp. I stood on my toes and I thought, oh, I would like to for, to speak to her. And, um, and it's so many women in front, it was difficult. And I stood and she, oh, she says, oh, and she noticed me, she stretched her arms and she said, oh, you are here. And then she rushed out. And I was rather disappointed I wasn't able to speak to her. But then water came through. And we showered ourselves and we drank it because we were so thirsty. And we came out of there when the water stopped. The women embraced us who worked there. And they shouted, you are wonderful, you are alive. We thought we'd never see you again. You came out of the fire. I looked around, I said, what are you talking about? And they were you know, embracing us, they were so happy to see us. I said, what are you talking about? They said, don't you know where you've been? I said, no, where? You were in a guest chamber. When I heard that, I completely, utterly lost my voice. Nothing, nothing came through, no saliva, nothing. And I tell you, until took a few minutes until I st start speaking. And at that point, I felt it must be power over powers that God must have saved my life. And so many others were with me. I get emotional. Gina and the rest of the Jewish inmates would soon learn that in comparison, Plazov had been a paradise. Auschwitz was an unknown hell to them, and the fear was even greater than before, because now it was the fear of the unknown. Fortunately for Gina and her mother, because their time at Auschwitz would be very short, they were able to avoid the tattooing ritual, and although they had no way of knowing, Germany was losing the war badly. 
By mid-January 1945, as Soviet forces approached the Auschwitz concentration camp complex, the Nazis began evacuating Auschwitz and its subcamps. SS units forced nearly 60,000 prisoners to march west from the Auschwitz camp system on foot toward the interior of the German Reich. These forced evacuations became known as death marches, and thousands of people were killed in the camps the days before these death marches began. Gina and her mother were among those sent on a death march in January 1945. Gina's sister Hella, who somehow survived the journey to Auschwitz, was now too sick to leave Auschwitz, and so she had to be left behind, behind, never to be seen again. After traveling under terrible conditions for almost a month, mainly by foot, Gina and the rest of the Jewish survivors eventually arrived in Buchenwald concentration camp. From there they were sent on cattle trucks to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in northern Germany, where they arrived in February 1945. Gina worked in the camp in a hospital barrack for the next two months, later saying, quote, I had always had a flair for nursing. It had been my ambition to study medicine until the war came along and destroyed my dreams. Here was an opportunity for me to learn more, even if it was hardly in ideal circumstances. While working at the hospital barrack, Gina managed to give herself a typhus injection and smuggled out a few charcoal tablets for her mother to protect her against dysentery. Gina did her very best to take care of and support her mother, to keep her alive no matter what. She was the only person Gina had left in the world, after all. Hidden side note. During her time in Belsen, Gina shared a barrack with Anne Frank, known today for keeping a diary in which she documented her life in hiding under Nazi persecution. Anne had already been in Belsen when Gina first arrived, and since she was dying from typhus, Gina did her best to comfort the young girl before her death. When the gates opened and the tanks entered the camp, we heard voices speaking in all languages through the loudspeakers, English, Polish, German. We have come to liberate you. You are all free. The Nazis have got nothing to say to you. It was the happiest moment of my life and one of the most fantastic experiences that could happen to anyone. On April 15, 1945, British forces liberated Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. The British found around 60,000 prisoners in the camp, most of them seriously ill. Between May 1943 and April 15, 1945, between 36,400 and 37,600 prisoners died in Bergen-Belsen. More than 13,000 former prisoners, too ill to recover, would go on to die after the liberation. After evacuating Bergen-Belsen, British forces burned down the whole camp to prevent the spread of typhus. The second day after the liberation, Gina met a British sergeant named Norman Turgo who could speak German, a language Gina was fluent in. That same day, Sergeant Turgo arrested the commandant of Belsen, Joseph Kramer. While Norman fell in love with her at first sight, the last thing Gina was thinking about after all she went through was a romantic connection. And at that point, Gina only knew two sentences in English, which she remembered from her childhood. But Norman was determined, and he continued to visit Gina until his unit had to move on to Plon, a town in Germany. Over the next days, the surviving prisoners were deloused and moved to a nearby German Panzer Army camp, which became the Bergen-Belsen Displaced Persons Camp. Gina's mother was seriously ill with typhus at the time, and so Gina was unable to leave the camp until her mother was better. 
Before he left, Norman had given Gina permission to take her mother to a hospital, and Gina was able to sleep in the ward next to her. With common sense and the little knowledge she possessed, Gina's words, not mine, Gina was able to eventually nurse her mother back to health. They remained at the displaced persons camp, which the Red Cross and St. John's Ambulance Brigade kept stocked with supplies of clothes and food through the spring and summer of 1945. During this time, Gina helped guide the liberators and convey to them the needs of the sick. For three months, she didn't hear from Norman, although she had sent him several letters during that time, and then they were finally reunited. Gina was upset at first with Norman for disappearing, but he explained that his disappearance was due to a return to England to care for his ill mother. Norman wanted to marry Gina. He wanted to since he first met her, but Gina was hurt and unsure. After taking into consideration how much she liked him and the work he did to bring people to justice, however, Gina agreed to marry Norman. On October 7, 1945, 22-year-old Gina Goldfinger got married to Norman Turgel at the synagogue in Lübeck, Germany, which the Nazis had used as a horse stable during the war. It was the first post-war post wedding to take place at the synagogue, and afterwards a reception was held at British Army headquarters in Plung. Gina's wedding dress was made from a British Army parachute, which is now in the Imperial War Museum in London, and photos are available on our website. Emotions ran high that day for Gina, especially since her mother could not be present for the wedding because she was not yet well enough to travel. Soon after the wedding, Norman received permission to travel to England with Gina. By marriage, she was now a British citizen and had to leave Germany. At the time, Gina was very shy, spoke little English, and got swept along by everything that was going on at the time. Perhaps she would have liked a bit more time to decide before she agreed to marriage, but, quote, I'm happy now that I did agree to marry Norman. I really believe we were meant for each other. Gina would have to leave her mother behind in Germany, since she was considered a foreigner, and this hurt her more than anything. But the moment she arrived in England, she started to set the wheels in motion to get her mother out of Germany and over to England as well. On November 10, 1945, Gina and Norman Turgel arrived in England with dozens of reporters and photographers waiting for them. The papers were full of banner headlines, the bride from Belson here, and all Gina wanted to do was hide. She was embarrassed at the star treatment and so very tired, but her arrival in England marked a new chapter in her life and she felt at long last that she can open a window and let in fresh air. After all she had gone through during World War II, Gina's general health was very poor, especially her lungs. For years she had to deal with not only the mental pain of the Holocaust, but also the physical pain that remained. But Gina was a very strong and determined woman, and she did what she had to do to survive. When Gina discovered she was pregnant with her first child, she wasn't very happy at first and wondered how it was even possible after so many years of malnutrition and menstrual difficulties. Nonetheless, Gina would go on to have three children with Norman, Hillary, Bernice, and Harris. Six months into Gina's first pregnancy, her mother was finally able to join them in England, and the reunion between mother and daughter was a very happy one, especially when Mrs. Goldfinger realized her daughter was pregnant. Because she developed agoraphobia immediately after the war, 
Mrs. Goldfinger was afraid to leave the house and couldn't be left alone. And so she lived with Gina and her family until her death in 1973, surrounded by her loving grandchildren and the only child she had left after World War II, Gina. Gina spent much of her life educating British school students about the Holocaust and telling her stories in interviews. Along with adopting a British way of life, Gina learned English and eventually wrote a book about her experiences to leave behind for young people to read. Her memoir, I Light a Candle, was published in 1987 and has been a major source for this episode. In April 1985, 62-year-old Gina and Norman returned to Belson for the 40th anniversary of the liberation. While Gina had doubts about whether she would be able to cope with the trip, she wanted to go back to show that she hadn't forgotten about the people who lost their lives. It was an emotional trip nonetheless for Gina, but going back to Belson made her appreciate once again the fact that she was still alive and making a small contribution to the memory of those who died during the Holocaust. German and British press were present when Gina arrived at Belson, and she did a live interview for the Germans and a separate interview for British news afterwards. In 1995, Norman Turgo passed away. In 2005, at 81 years old, Gina escorted Queen Elizabeth II to her seat for a Holocaust Memorial Day commemoration in London, held on the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, one of the camps in which Gina had been imprisoned in. Because of her long-term educational work, in 2011, Gina was awarded a well-deserved MBE, which stands for Member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. It is a British award that honors those who contribute to the arts and sciences, work with charitable and welfare organizations, and perform public service outside the civil service. In April 2018, Gina spoke at Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day event in London, and two months later, on June 7, 2018, Gina Goldfinger Turgel died at the age of 95. She was survived by her three children, as well as grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Karen Pollack, chief executive of the Holocaust Educational Trust, had the following to say at the time of Gina's death, and we here at Hidden History feel it's a good way to end this episode. Quote, We feel so lucky to have known Gina. She was proud of our work at the Trust and was a huge source of encouragement and motivation to us all. We will continue to educate future generations in her name, ensuring her story and those of millions of others is never forgotten. A shining light has gone out today and will never be replaced. Thank you for listening and I hope you have learned something new today. Season 2 of Hidden History will explore the lives of victims and heroes of the Holocaust. Many of their stories have been hidden in the pages of history and deserve to be told. Pictures, newspaper clippings, and links to external articles relating to a particular episode will be available on our website. Thanks again for listening. I'm John Rodriguez, and until we meet again, this has been Hidden History and Odyssey Through Time. Thank you.